Good morning. Blessed Resurrection Sunday to you. Um, the once a year, we have the privilege of celebrating uh, not only Christ's death, but his resurrection. And uh, um, I, I know we, we commonly refer to this Sunday as Easter, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but uh, our preference is to call it Resurrection Sunday because that's exactly what this Sunday celebrates. Um, it celebrates his death on Good Friday and then his resurrection on Sunday so that we might have new life in him. This morning we uh, return to a familiar and excellent passage. In fact, it is probably the single best passage on the idea, the doctrine of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. So turn there, if you would. And as you do that, uh, let me just say a couple of words in terms of some things that are going on. Um, it is Resurrection Sunday, and after service, we encourage you to hang out, have some fellowship. We have our second hour uh, classes going on, our fellowship groups, and uh, Gary will be teaching uh, a special Easter second hour um, on Christ's death. And so I, I get the topic of his resurrection. Gary will be talking about um, his uh, sacrificial death. Um, and so, um, you know, join in with that. And then we'll be serving lunch. And for all of you, and I know a lot of you guys dressed up nicely, and so uh, we will be having uh, family pictures, meaning that uh, there will be a setup for you to take your family, to take some pictures throughout lunch and a little bit afterwards, um, so you can have a nice Easter picture. And we're glad that you might be able to do that. And thankful for the, for, um, the members that are willing to take those pictures for us. Uh, they do a great job, and so you want to take advantage of that as well. But we are glad that we are gathered as we sing praises, as we lift our voices, as we say our amens to what Christ has accomplished for us. And the reason why the resurrection is so important is because it is absolutely essential, it is absolutely essential to our gospel hope. That may not at first register to you, because I think... Usually, when we think about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, our immediate sense, and properly so, is that he died the death that we should have died. His sacrificial atoning death is what is at the forefront of our minds in terms of his ministry to us. That's true. But in that, you might, you might fail to realize that it was Jesus himself who, at least on three occasions in the gospel, before before Calvary, kept insisting to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the chief priests um, and the scribes, and that he will be given over to the Gentiles, he will be killed, and he always adds, and he would rise on the third day. So at least what Jesus seemed to be saying to the disciples was not just a sacrificial death, but a resurrection from life. So whether it's the words of Christ in terms of his promise, or it is the actual scriptures themselves in terms of their emphasis, it is, it is the resurrection that validates everything that Christ has said that he would accomplish. There have been many so-called saviors. There have been many great teachers. There have been many religious leaders who have claimed that they have given us some important and significant word, promises, guarantees, offers 
that mean that we might have peace or we might reach nirvana or we might have something at some point. None of them have the validation of rising from the dead. It is not just his death that we embrace. It is resurrection. Because the fact that he overcomes the grave is evidence that everything that he promised, the forgiveness of sins, the full payment of our sins on the cross, uh, eternal life to come, everything that he has promised, he has successfully done. And the victory is that he has risen and that he is alive. That's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And this morning, we want to look We're going to look at a lot of verses, and we're going to move fairly quickly, but I think the intention is to highlight how the gospel, our gospel hope, is really situated squarely on his resurrection. His resurrection, our gospel hope, from 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, the the two major movements is is, is verses 1 through 11, the promise of the gospel realized, and verses 12 through 15, the power of the gospel Vindicated. Actually, that that's, should be 12 to 20. So there's a mistake on my part. Nevertheless, it's still Resurrection Sunday. Shall we, shall we pray and look to the scriptures for the word this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we sang songs that celebrate um, our new life in you, that that new life in you has begun not because we have initiated anything, The scripture made clear, Lord, that you loved us while we were yet sinners, while we were still in the process of doing what sinners do, while we were rebels and enemies and hostile towards you, you sent your son to die for the sins that we deserve to die for. And then you raised him on the third day as absolute evidence of overcoming sin and death in Christ. And Father, scriptures remind us that we are now united with him. And in his death, our old nature has died. And in his resurrection, we now live with and through him. So as we look to our gospel hope, as we look to the good news of salvation, we are reminded again, Lord, that it is the resurrection that has brought these promises to life. And is the resurrection of our Jesus Christ that makes his promises certain. And is the resurrection that we now look to with celebration and thankfulness, with glad victory because of who Christ is, what he has done in his death and his resurrection for us. We praise you and ask that you would open our eyes to see good things from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is... His resurrection that becomes our gospel hope. And we begin with the promise of the gospel realized. And I know, I, I, I apologize that I don't have a better first um, section title. Because I think if you just read that, you're not, you're not exactly sure where we're going. But this is where we're going. It, uh, it's about the promise of the good news of salvation realized. Um, that verses 1 through 11 walk us through. It begins with a proclamation of salvation that is the gospel. In verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which 
also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He begins, Paul begins here, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by speaking of that which is most significant, the gospel. And he uses that term, gospel, which literally means good news or a good report. It means that a proclamation is a worthwhile, excellent thing for you to hear. What is this good news? And what's so good about it? And it's the gospel, verse 2 says, by which you are saved. It's the gospel by which you might be, be rescued from what you deserve. And for all those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, we understand basically what the gospel is. It it is, is a recognition that we are sinners deserving of eternal damnation. And despite our deserving, God has granted to us a grace, a mercy, and a kindness. And he has sent his own son to take our place in that death. So that his substitutionary atonement, his death, might pay the price to redeem me. That he might pay the penalty of my sins. That on the cross, every sin that I have committed, every sin that I may commit in this earthly life, can be placed on Christ, crucified, paid in full, so that I might have his righteousness and my guilt might have died with him. So that is his death. That is the gospel. The good news that my sins can be washed away, not because of anything that I've done, but because of who Jesus Christ is. But what Paul is saying here is not that this is the good news. He he already says that. Um, It is the good news of salvation. That is clear. But notice how he expresses how the gospel has been proclaimed for the sake of salvation to all those who receive and believe. The verbs that he uses, right? I make known to you, brethren. And then he says, the gospel which I preached to you, brothers. Right? Which you, on your part, you received, and which in now you stand. So the verbs tell us clearly what has taken place. There is, there is a knowledge that is expressed in the message of salvation. There's a proclamation of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. And then there's a receiving. There's a standing. And we read in verse 2, which, uh, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so there's a receiving and a believing. The gospel is realized in the reception of the truth of Jesus Christ and the message of his death for us. I'll just give you two verses from Romans to remind us again of um, why it is that we need rescuing. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the word that we should underline in our minds is all, because that includes me, that includes you. There's not born a single human, except the Lord Jesus Christ, is born without a sin nature. They sin because they're sinners. You know, you hear that expression, to err is human. Well, more, more explicitly and more accurately, to sin is human. We're called sinners, and you add the ER at the end of a noun because you're saying that's what you do by profession. That's what you're good at. 
That's what comes by nature. That's what we mean that all have sinned. We're all sinners falling short of God's glorious holiness, righteousness, and justice. In Romans 6.23, he says that what are the, what's the penalty of such sin and the nature of sin? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, there's a penalty to be paid. And that penalty must be paid in full by either myself or by faith they'll be paid on the cross in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. That we can be forgiven of our sins. That we can have a righteous standing before the holy and all-knowing God. This is the good news, the best news, that Jesus Christ has died on a cross and is willing to substitute His death for the death that we deserved. So that if we would believe upon Him, we might stand in His righteousness before the Holy Father and Judge. Romans 8.3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. His death on the cross means that we can be forgiven. Receive and believe. This is the proclamation of salvation that is the promise of the gospel. This is part of what the gospel is meant to be. This is the message that could save human souls. And this is why Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 saying that this is, this is what has been proclaimed in our gospel. And that salvation is realized. That salvation is offered. That salvation is real. And it is real because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. But the promise of the gospel is not just realized in the gift of salvation. It's also realized in the priority of God's promises in His scriptures. It is what I mean by it is prioritized by scripture. Look at verse 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as of first importance, underline that in your mind, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The two things that should stand out uh, in your mind in these two verses is one, that phrase of first importance. First importance in, in comparison to what? And I think what Paul is saying compared to all the promises and everything that, that the scripture is trying to point us towards, the magnificence of God, the sinfulness of men, the difficulty of human beings trying to fulfill God's law, all of that, everything that Scripture is attested to, he is saying this is of primacy. This is of, of, of first importance. In the category and the order of what is most important, it is this. And this is what I deliver to you. It's in the category of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that our salvation is granted because of Christ's death for us, yes, but that it is validated in His rising from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that's that second part that should that just strike us immediately. That all of this is according to the scriptures. It's no cosmic coincidence. It's not a very fortunate turn of events. We're not just, oh Lord, thank you that all these things kind of fell into place 
right? Otherwise, you know, we would have no salvation. This is according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. In fact, in Acts 2, as Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he says in Acts 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He, Peter makes it very clear, you're implicated, you nailed him to the cross, right? By the hands of godless men and put him to death. But so that we understand this is a fulfillment of God's intentions, God delivered over Jesus Christ into their hands by His predetermined plan and foreknowledge. This is what God planned all along. And it's clear in the Scriptures that this is what God planned all along. It's a, it's a fine thread, a line of argument that runs all the way through the Scriptures from the opening verses of Genesis. As soon as Adam and Eve fall into sin and have now become, right, the, the, the origin of all of our sin natures, everyone that is a son of Adam, everyone that's a daughter of Eve will be born with the sin nature. Even when that occurs, in the midst of their curse, God promises a deliverance. That someone from the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And then small promises, large promises along the way to Abraham that there would come amongst from his descendants one that will, will bless the nations and that he himself would be uh, 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 the beginning of a lineage that would bless the entire world. And it gets more specific in the person of David who sees that someone uh, from his lineage will sit on his throne forever. The forever king, which is the Messiah. We call him the Christ in that term Right? That Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right? He's not born to Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is his title. He's the Messiah, the, the forever King of Israel, son of David. So you put all that together, this is all according to the scriptures that he would be, that he would live, and that he would die. The dying part, I think, is places like Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 4-6 says this, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the inequity of us all to fall on him. This is what I think Paul means by this is of first importance. That I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We saw that there. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures that he must come back to life. That all these things must take place in fulfillment of what God has promised. The gospel didn't just kind of happen. It wasn't a series of very fortunate events. No, in fact, the gospel is planned. 
promised. And as Ephesians 1 says, even before the laying of the foundation of the universe. You understand that, right? Before the laying of the foundation. Before he begins creation, God has it in his mind that there would be sinners and that they would need salvation, that he would send his son and he would call these sinners to himself. It's all part of God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. This is what God intended. So the promise of the gospel is realized in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not just in salvation, right? That's verses 1 and 2. But also in the fulfillment of the scriptures, of God's promises, his predetermined plan to rescue sinners. That's verses 3 and 4. And then it is testified by his appearance after his resurrection. Verses 5 through 11, it says this. And that he appeared to Cephas. Um, Aramaic term for Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I'm the least of the apostles, and I'm fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. You see, verses 5 through 11 now makes an interesting proclamation that the gospel and the realization of the gospel, like how powerfully and really the gospel goes out and saves sinners, is demonstrated in that it brings salvation to sinners, right? That's that first part. That has been promised in God's plan from all the beginning of human history. That's the second part. But thirdly, here, it's talking about how the gospel is realized in its reality, in, in the fact that Jesus, being raised from the dead, appeared to so many. The point is, it's historical. Our faith is not based on wishful thinking. Oh man, it would be really good if, you know, if there was a Savior. Let's pretend there's a Savior and just kind of think good thoughts about what that Savior could do. It's not based on some kind of theory or what might possibly happen. This is God, the incarnation of God, who steps into our human history, who lives a perfect life, who dies, then is raised from the dead as evidence of his victory over death and sin, and then literally walks among people before he is ascended. The fact that the gospel is realized in history, it means that everything about what we believe is situated in reality. Guys, this is not just a worldview. This is not how we hope that the world might be. This isn't a fantasy or, 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 or kind thoughts. This isn't some kind of like fable or mythology that we would wish would become true. This is history. He appears to Cephas and the twelve, meaning I think the, the, the main apostles, which would actually be eleven, but they're referred to as the twelve, right? As those that were followers of Jesus Christ from the beginning. And then to 500, it says, uh, more than 500 followers of Jesus. And James, and I think it's talking here not about James, the apostle, because, because that he would have already been mentioned in verse 5, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would later become the leader of the Jerusalem church and the author of the epistle, James. 
as well as it says to the rest of the apostles, meaning all those that are sent. The term apostolos literally just means that those are sent, the apostoloi, right? They are, they are commissioned, meaning all of the disciples, all the followers of Christ, and then to Paul himself. And he emphasizes how unworthy he is. Why does Paul say this? Because at the writing of this uh, Corinthian letter, there are literally hundreds upon hundreds of human beings who would testify Right? That they had seen the risen Lord. That He had spoke to them. That He ministered to them before He was ascended. See, the gospel was real. Not only because the proclamation of it is just so magnificent and amazing. But because it's historically validated. He literally rose from the dead and appeared. It's not one of those, He rose from the dead and, you know, um, we, we think He kind of uh, did some stuff and then He disappeared. And no one saw Him. Right? You just have to believe. It's not just some theory or some distant hope. The gospel is realized in history, in life, in reality. What this means for us is that if you have heard the gospel, and I imagine some of you guys think much about Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why you're here. You feel like it's Easter. It's a significant day to go and uh, visit Christ's church because... You think a lot, you know, you, you, you like God, and you like the idea of His Son, and His Son coming and dying on the cross for people. That seems like a good thing. So you hold to the theory, you, you kind of like the world view, and so you felt like you should show up for church. I'm not mad at that, I'm glad that you're here, but just so that we understand, the reality of the gospel is not, not a theory, it's not an idea, it's not a fantasy or a wishful hope, it is something that has happened in history. So that whatever else we can say about the, the gospel and about Jesus Christ, He really happened. And it puts a demand upon us as if something has actually taken place. It's like what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If you're here and you realize that there's something to the gospel that you like, you, you, you love the idea of someone dying for the sins of another, you like the idea of the things that Jesus taught, but it's historically and in your life not something that connects to you. I would call you to just repent of your sins and turn to Him by faith and trust in Him for righteousness, forgiveness, and life. Man, it is easy to kind of have, you know, half in and half out, to think of 
I, I kind of want to be a Christian, but you know, I'm not so sure. I, I, need to, I need to do my part. Maybe you're trying to smuggle in your righteousness, saying, Lord, you did so much for me, and I'm going to prove that I'm worthy of your salvation. I'm going to kind of get my act together. And when I get my act together, that's when I'll come into your house, right? Or, or perhaps you're thinking, oh, I like it, but I like it at a distance. I want to keep that warm fuzzies about how Jesus loves us and how God has demonstrated his love for us in sending his only son to die on the cross. I love that. But, you know, that I, I just want to keep that warm fuzzies, and I, I don't want anything more than that. For those of us that are kind of wading in, up to our knees, right, into the waters of religion and, and the gospel, you are missing the entirety of what the gospel is. It is not a small pool for you to clean your feet. It is the ocean by which you might find cleansing for your entire life and future, etc. And as foolish as it might be for me to go to the ocean and get buckets and pull out a few buckets, surround myself with buckets of ocean water and say, there, I have the ocean. It's not yours to take as you deem. It is yours to plunge into, to delight in, and to love. So turn to the Lord. What keeps you from salvation? Is it yourself? Foolishness. Put that aside and come begging to the cross and find that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is the power, the wonder, and the joy of the gospel proclamation. That's the promise of the gospel realized. But there's always the, the power of the gospel validated in verses 12 through 20. Let not that 15 fool you. He's disguised as a 20. The power of the gospel validated. We begin in verse 12. Um, and verse 12 and 13 kind of sets up an issue that Paul is addressing here in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He says here, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So apparently, within the Corinthian context, there was a false teaching emerging. And they were proclaiming that the resurrection either didn't matter, or the idea that, that we would be raised to new bodies, physical bodies, was weird, and that we should kind of put that aside, that we're all going to be spiritual beings kind of absorbed into some giant cosmic spiritual soup, right? And we'll all be happy, and, and it's like this soup where we glorify God, and you kind of live into eternity in this, in this great ooze. And Paul is saying, that is so false. And part of it, and we won't go into the theological depth of it, but in terms of our anthropology, what Scripture teaches us is that as human beings, we are physical beings. We are spiritual beings. We are mental and emotional beings. And all of that ties us up together. And that's what comes sometimes if your physical is not doing well, right? Then emotionally, you kind of have a tendency to not be doing too well. And often that leads us to the sinful habits or, or sinful uh, anger or irritations. And, and so spiritually, we're not doing too well. These things kind of interconnect because that is the holistic being. And Paul is saying, if you're saying that we are raised, but in some spiritual sense, if you're saying that there is no actual resurrection from the dead, then by principle, you're denying that Jesus himself may have rise from the dead. And if that's the case, we have a series of negative, right, 
false things that are the result of Christ not rising from the dead. And that's, that's what we have in verses 12 through 20. And the first, Paul says, right, if I say it in the negative, verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, in fact, if in fact the dead are not raised. He says two things here. First, he says that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching and your faith is in vain. The way we might say it is that, in a positive, is that because Christ is raised from the dead, our message is not in vain. This is what we mean by vain. Um, kenos, the, the New Testament word, um, means that something, it means literally that a vessel is empty. You know, it's like, it's, it's like when you reach for that carton of milk, and then your sons have uh, used up the last bit of it for the cereal, but for some inexplicable reason, they have placed the empty carton <laughs> back in the refrigerator. Have you ever had that experience? And you grab it and you're like, oh, why would you put this back? It takes more work to put this back than to leave it on the counter and throw it away. It's just to mess with you, right? It, it's, it's empty. It's, it's, it's meaningless. It's futile. It's, it doesn't provide what you hope that it provides. It's a, used metaphorically, the word vain, it can be translated to be useless or without substance or hollow. And maybe the best meaning for us here is that it's meaningless. If Christ is not raised, as he promised that he would be raised, as a validation that his death was real and that he overcame sin and the penalty of sin, death. If he has never been raised from the dead physically, really, historically, Paul is saying that everything that we preach about the gospel, it's just an empty carton. Meaningless. Empty. Futile. Our preaching is useless. It offers something that is like well-packaged, a good idea, but has no substance. And your faith is the same, empty, void, meaningless. Our faith would be good intentions, a distant and vague hope, a religious curiosity maybe. You know, it would be the same as any other religious statement. You just got to believe it. Got to put your hope in it. Even if it makes no sense, just put your hope in it. That's all we got. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then everything that the gospel says actually entered into human history, into our reality. Christ is real, and He is alive. Which means His death accomplished everything He promised it would accomplish. But if He's not raised from the dead, our, our proclamation of the gospel is fake, and empty. Our belief in the gospel is futile and wrong. And Paul goes further. In fact, everything that we say about the things of the Lord, it turns out we're liars. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If Christ is not actually physically and historically risen from the dead, every Christian is a liar. We bear testimony, a false testimony, against God because God hasn't raised Jesus and we're, we're claiming that He has. And by claiming that He has, we, we are not just 
we're not just offering this empty promise of, of forgiveness and salvation. We are literally testifying to something that is false and contrary to the act of God Himself. He did not raise Christ. Then Christ did not, is not raised from the dead. And we claim that He has. We're liars. Right? The resurrection is central to the message of the gospel, the work and purpose of God. It's the validation that Jesus did everything he claimed, that all the promises of God are fulfilled in him, and that he could sit on the throne of David forever. That's the Christ, the forever king. He can't be the, the kind of, like, let's take it metaphorically, he, like, what he did was super nice, and so we kind of forever remember him. No, no, he is either the actual forever king that sits on the throne of David and has cleansed us of unrighteousness, or he's not. Is it possible for a Christian to not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? According to 1 Corinthians 15, the answer is no. Absolutely not. It is an essential doctrine. And if you don't believe that Christ has risen from the dead physically, historically, and really, you might as well believe that he was not an actual historical figure. And you could just kind of fall into that camp that says, well, even if Christ wasn't real, he could be real in our hearts. It's that nonsense, right? Our message is not in vain. It is not an empty carton. It is not false. Because Jesus rose from the dead to validate everything that he promised in the gospel. Secondly, verses 16 and 17, our faith is not worthless. Our faith is not worthless. Look at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Christ is never raised from the dead, then the Messiah King isn't a lot. And it reiterates the, the main point that there's no death, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then that person that embodies our hope of overcoming sin and death, he is still dead. He is still in the grave. If Christ is still in the grave, then our faith is futile. It, it's, it's worthless. It can't accomplish anything. It has no power or strength because you're still in your sins. Whatever sins you committed, that bill is still coming due. Every sin, every thought, every wicked deed, those things will still come due at the end of our lives if Christ is not raised from the dead. Because if He's not raised from the dead, there's no evidence that He has had victory and has substitutionarily taken our sins upon Himself and that our sins have died with Him. It just means, did a man die? It happens all the time. I think it happens every like five seconds in the world right now. A human being will die. Even as we preach this message, dozens and dozens of human souls have gone to eternity. This, this Jesus, if he is not raised from the dead, is just counted amongst the billions or trillions of human souls that have come and gone. And the problem is then we remain in our sins. Our sins aren't forgiven. The gospel is the good news of good intentions, not of the fulfillment of forgiveness of sins. But Christ has been raised. 
We are not in our sins. And our faith actually is meaningful. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5 says it this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice that phrase, made us alive together with Christ. It doesn't just say... That, that thank God he killed our transgressions in Christ, period. That would be true. But the emphasis is that even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive in Christ. Our union with Christ means that we have died to our sin and we're raised to newness of life in him. If he is not raised, there is no newness of life in him. There's just the ongoing death and the victory of sin over our souls. But you see my point. Our message is not in vain because of the resurrection. Our faith is not worthless and empty. We are not still in our sins because of His resurrection. And third, oh, what, 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 what's happening? I'll come to, there you go. Oh no. There we are. Our faith is not worthless. Oh wait. Oh, I guess I didn't make a I didn't make a separate C slide, sorry. Our hope is not pitiful. Don't don't look at the last one yet. Right? <laughs> Our hope is not pitiful, verses 18 and 19. The, the, the way that Paul places it in the negative is this way in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And that may not seem like, you know, a, a huge statement, but you recall that early on, um, uh, Paul had already said, when he's talking about the historical reality uh, of those that had witnessed um, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. But catch that second phrase, though some have fallen asleep. Some of these eyewitnesses and followers of Jesus have already died. And so as Paul is saying this, there are brothers and sisters in Christ that have passed away. Maybe a grandpa, grandma, right? Maybe a brother, maybe an uncle, right? An aunt. Someone that is close to you has passed away and they believed in Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And Paul is saying, listen, if Christ is not raised from the dead, neither will they. In fact, they have died in their sin and they perished. They will be destroyed eternally for their sinfulness. And whatever wishful thought that they had about forgiveness of sins and eternal, all gone. They're feeling the pangs of hell because that's what they deserved and no one paid their penalty so they are paying it in full. And he says, we call them those that have fallen asleep but if Christ has not been risen, they're perishing. They're not sleeping. They're eternally damned. Verse 19. 
If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, meaning like if our hope is only confined to this life, to this physical existence until we die, just as he and his hope was, was confined to his physical life and then he died. If that's all we have, we are, he says, we are of all men most to be pitied. It is a pitiful state. It's not just a bad gospel. It's pathetic. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, everything that we believe is pathetic. We're saying grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, they're with the Lord. They're not with the Lord. They're perishing. And as I get sick and I'm dying and in my deathbed, I can say, okay, I'm looking forward to meeting Jesus. You're not going to meet Jesus. He's dead. And you will face eternal judgment. He's saying, if Jesus is not raised, our hope becomes the most pitiful thing you can imagine. Pathetic, wasteful. And everyone that has died in faith has lived and died a meaningless and purposeless existence. Think of all the great martyrs, right? Those, those wonderful missionaries and martyrs that we know. The Jim Elliots, the William Careys, the George Pattons. All wasted their life for nothing. The John Husses, the Paul Bunyans, the John Knox, the worthless. John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Edwards, George Whitfield, meaningless, empty. What are you proclaiming? You're proclaiming an idea that is, it is pitiful because it's just not accurate or true. And here's our last part. The conclusion is, is already up there, point D. The final statement on all of this that Paul gives us in this passage is verse 20. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. We started this all as this hypothetical, what if Christ has not been raised? Well, what does that mean? Well, if he's not been raised, then yeah, then our message would be in vain, our faith would be worthless, and our hope would be pitiful. But he has been raised. Verse 20 tells us that our hope is in Christ, raised from the dead. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. This is a historical fact. This is a genuine fact. This is a the doctrinally and theologically, you know, absolutely world-changing fact. And he becomes then the first fruits of those that are asleep. That just as he has been raised, we may expect that our life doesn't end in the grave. That the suffering in this life is not all we will experience. But that eternal life is to come. And so we can look at eternity and believe that that is so much better than anything that is the best of this world. That we can longingly look forward to that eternity to come. And faithfully live despite the difficulties of the present moment. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as evidence of his death, substitutionary death, as evidence of his forgiveness of our sins, as evidence that he has exchanged our sins and his righteousness so that we are covered in his righteousness before a perfectly holy God. And that we might receive our resurrection from the dead one day. That we will, we will be raised to newness of life because of this gospel message of hope. It's His resurrection that is our gospel and eternal hope. Let's close our time in prayer.
Heavenly Father, as we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection always go together. His wonderful and perfect substitutionary death for us that forgave us of sins that we deserved nothing but uh, judgment and penalty for. You paid in full on the cross. And then as evidence of your victory and our victory in Christ, you raised Him from the dead. We celebrate that rising from the dead, the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, that He might be exalted and that we might find great joy in serving and following Him all the days of this life with the view of that glory to be revealed in the life to come. Lord, may all who are here turn their hearts to Jesus Christ to believe in this message of the gospel of His death and His resurrection to new life and purpose and to the joy and satisfaction of who they might become in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.